Welcome to episode two of the Carl Shoot Show. If things have gone right, you should have heard some very cool classical music, probably classical music, on the way into the podcast, and then I'll probably fade it out with something else. So if you listen to this podcast and you hear the good music, that means that I have mastered the computer overlords at Spotify. So uh, this is uh, this is my goal today, so you can test me. But today, I want to talk about the letter in the beginning of the Silmarillion. Letter from J.R.R. Tolkien. I think it's Tolkien. Anyway, uh, I'm told that it's Tolkien. But I think Middle Earth Mixer on Twitter said that. So I've recently been listening to the whole works of, of Tolkien on Audible. I do a lot of driving. And Andy Circus, who is a talented actor, pretty good voice person. He is the voice of Gollum in the movies. The movies are all right. The movies aren't great. No, no, scratch that. As movies, the movies are great. Because they're based on such wonderful source material. As expressions of what Tolkien was getting at, they're okay. There are some flaws, notably in the portrayal of Faramir as being kind of tempted by the ring, but having to struggle and overcome it. Faramir was hardly tempted at all. I don't think he was. Uh, so that changes a bit of the message. I think if you are a good man, if you're a good elf, if you're a good person in Tolkien world, then the ring doesn't really have a hold on you. It's only if you have secret desires. You know, if you're like Feanor and the fire is burning within you, then then Melkor can, can uh, or Sauron or whoever, can get an edge on you. Or the ring, which embodies their power down through the ages, can get an edge on you. So, uh, no, Faramir should have been should have been immune in the movie. You know, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking, why do we even care about what characters in Tolkien's world do, what their relationship to evil is? And I've said a few times, I think this is I think this is true history. Or let me explain. Do I actually think that there was the the temptation, the fall of the Noldor, the slaughter of the Teleri? on the beaches. No, no, probably not. Probably not. But true as in telling us good, deep, important things about human nature and our relationship to the world and to God. I think Tolkien says a lot of true things. I think he says things that are much more true than, say, uh, your understanding of the Vietnam War from your history books, which is almost certainly false. Tolkien is not false in those ways. Okay, so, all right, I want to talk about this letter that's at the beginning of the Silmarillion. The edition that I have is the one illustrated by Ted Naismith. It's got some beautiful pictures in it. Uh, it's so beautiful, I haven't really sketched in it. I usually write in my books, but I haven't done it in this one. So I might make a few light pencil marks as I go through here. But on page 15 of the introduction, page XV, there's a letter... Uh, from Tolkien to Milton Waldman, who was one of his publishers. And I think I'm just going to read chunks of it and talk about it. And this might take more than one show. I'm planning to go about 40 minutes or so because I've got to take care of my chickens. So uh, he starts off, My dear Milton, you asked for a brief sketch of my stuff that is connected with my imaginary world. 
Yeah, so this imaginary world, this is an amazing project of an extended imagination of a person who is an absolute and total nerd. Uh, I'm listening to the story of Maeglin, who's uh, going to bring it about the fall of Gondolin. You know, if you know, you know, right? And uh, just thinking, who is this man that thinks up these things in such detail and actually has the languages worked out to um, to describe these things and say, well, in one language, it says this. In the other language, his name was this. And well, let's go on and see what, what the professor says. It is difficult to say anything without saying too much. The attempt to say a few words opens a floodgate of excitement. The egoist and the artist at once desires to say how the stuff has grown, what it is like, and what he thinks he means or is trying to represent by it all. So the egoist and the artist. I think that the two go together. That uh, great artists tend to be the sorts of people who think that they're the absolute best at whatever it is they're doing and that uh, they must create. And it's almost an act of conquering. You know, there's this famous bit from Shakespeare. I don't have the sonnets handy or I would read it to you. Oh, do I have the sonnets handy? Where's my Shakespeare? It's on the back wall. But it's the, the one about uh, bare ruined choirs, I think. It's talking about how this person that he's writing the letter to, probably a young man, is going to grow old and die. But that it doesn't matter because my verse will live on and your beauty will live on in my verse. And I can't remember the exact lines, but you can look it up. The arrogance of Shakespeare to think that his poetry is so good that it's going to be eternal, that he is able to give e immortality to this unnamed person he's writing to, this young man that he wants to, he wants him to have babies. Uh, so it's a, it's pretty grand to think that the products of your imagination, grandiose, I think is a better word, to think that the products of your imagination are so worthwhile that they're going to be immortal. I mean, it's a, it's a step to even think that they're worth publishing. You know, the step to to write something and send it to a publisher is a big step uh, that, you know, a lot of us who play around with stories uh, just never do. Nowadays, it's the easiest it's ever been. You can go on Amazon and self-publish. Doesn't mean anybody will read it. It does make it harder and harder for me to find my Space Marine stories to find ones that are any good. Uh, yeah, okay, so here's, I know what you're thinking. You're saying, well, which Space Marine stories are good? Craig Allenson's Expeditionary Force is good. CJ Carella's stuff, gosh, I can't remember the title, is really good. You know, the humans make it into the cosmos and the aliens need to be afraid because the humans are the scariest sons of guns in the universe. Um, that's very good. Devin Erickson has a cool first novel called what's it called oh shoot just look up Devin Erickson theft of fire that's what it's called uh, which is a fantastic first novel uh, we'll see if he proceeds to be excellent he's spending all of his time arguing libertarian talking points on Twitter and I'm just like dude go right uh, and of course Larry Korea he doesn't do space marines but you know, this is the stuff that I, I read for fun. 
uh, but it, the egoist and the artist is the point I wanted to make. That an artist probably is a bit of a egoist. He probably thinks his stuff is so good that you ought to pay attention to it. And in Tolkien's case, I think this was um, kind of an obsession. And yet, you know, it could have grown to consume him. So let's pause for a minute and think. Everybody kind of is a golem. Okay, so you've got that thing, you've got that temptation, that part of, part of your life, that little flaw in your spirit that draws you on to do things you shouldn't ought to do, right? You know you have it. You know you have it, right? Uh, and there's always this danger that it's going to consume your life, that you're going to end up, you know, like Gollum and saying, my precious, over this thing that has the potential to ruin your life. On the other hand, this thing that has the potential to ruin your life is also a source of, it, I mean, it's your primary desires. And if channeled correctly, this is the way to glory, the way to do great deeds, to create great works of art, um, is to take this thing that you love and do it, you know, in good bounds, you know, not neglect your family over much and uh, keep it within the bounds of, of virtue and the good, and it can become the Lord of the Rings, you know, which has been inspiring people for a long time. Uh, well, so my point is, Tolkien writes, Gollum, the Gollum character is very believable. Where do you think he learned about him? Might I suggest he learned about Gollum by a reflection on his own self? This is all speculation, you know, but, you know, sitting in, in the, the office at Oxford, and wishing the students would go away so he could get back to his work. You can also see a little bit of this in his short story, Leaf by Niggle, uh, where there's a temptation of the artist to focus in so much on his little bit of work and to forget that it's actually part of a, a grander whole. And I, I don't want to do Leaf by Niggle today. Scott and I talked about it, I think, uh, on that other podcast, the Online Great Books podcast. So you can go look that up and give that a read. Uh, so egoist and artist, he says at the end of that paragraph, I shall inflict some of this on you, but, and I like that word inflict. So he also knows, you know, he knows that this is, this is a bit much like the Silmarillion is, is the, the nerd. It's like the Star Trek technical manual. It's for the real nerds. Uh, but anyway, let me go to the second paragraph. In order of time, growth, and composition, this stuff began with me, though I do not suppose that that is of much interest to anyone but myself. I mean, I do not remember a time when I was not building it. He goes on to talk about how uh, he's always done these languages. But he's been doing it uh, for a long time, that it, it grows out of his whole life. It's a... Uh, even inventing languages. And he says somewhere in here that, actually on the next page, page 17, they arose in my mind, the stories, as given things, and as they came to separately, so too the links grew. He says at the end, I always had the sense of recording what was already there somewhere, not of inventing. 
And I, I find this very striking. And, you know, I don't think Tolkien was inspired by the muse like Homer. But on the other hand, to the degree that what he says is true, and I don't mean factually true. I don't mean Fingolfin was a real person. Wouldn't that be fun, though? Uh, or that there were actually dwarves in the mountains. I mean that what it says that's true of the good, the beautiful, and the true <laughs> is something that is revealed to you. It's something that you experience. It's not something that you invent. You do not get to invent the good. Let me repeat that. You do not get to invent the good. You discover it. Much as Tolkien says he discovered the stories of Erarendil and Elrond and you know all of these, these fanciful people. Uh, I don't even think I'm, I'm putting too much into this. Uh, but I, I find that fascinating. And he says that what he wanted to do was create a mythology for his country, his England, uh, which England doesn't really have England, England's history, you know, being conquered by the French, their, their myths and legends are French. You know, King Arthur is, um, well, King Arthur, the historical King Arthur would not be French, but the legends about King Arthur are French. And they're also Christian, which he thinks doesn't work as initial myths, because they're probably, he doesn't say why. Uh, he says, for reasons which I will not elaborate, that seems to me fatal. You know, that, that uh, it has uh, Christian religious truth in it in the King Arthur stories. Uh, but that, that's, that doesn't work. Because you're kind of where you need to go before you get there. You know, the mythic should be before that. It should be without that. Uh, I'm trying to, to get at what he's getting at. You know, it, it wouldn't be... Just like we don't judge Achilles on Christian morality, you know, it'd be strange for him to be a Christian. It doesn't have any sort of reflection on the truth of Christianity. It's just his stories from the before times. This is what man was like. And uh, the religion is a later thing that confirms, at least in my belief, that confirms and fulfills what man is like. But you know, you have to get that first, what the human is. Uh, yeah, so let me go a little bit more. So as I say, I'm just meandering through this letter. It's, it's super fun uh, for Tolkien nerds like me. He dislikes allegory. So this is what he says. So anybody who tries to read The Lord of the Rings is an allegory. You know, like Sauron represents Hitler. It's just, it's dumb. I dislike allegory, the conscious and intentional allegory. Yet any attempt to explain the purported myth or fairy tale must use allegorical language. Okay, so there's two things. A direct allegory, such as uh, C.S. Lewis often wrote, you know, Aslan is Jesus. That, that's not what Tolkien's going to do. Uh, but he says, on the other hand, there is an allegorical language that you understand with myth. Why does a myth speak to you? It's because things in the myth are true, just like I was saying, that things in the myth match up to realities. It's not a conscious allegory. You're not setting out to say the dragon is the devil. That, that's, that's boring. 
But he's got three things that he says uh, he's concerned with. All of this stuff, he says, is mainly concerned with fall, mortality, and the machine. Fall being uh, a, uh, a descent from primordial bliss, you know, like the fall in Christian theology. Mortality, uh, you know, things pass away, entropy, heat death of the universe, and the machine, which is uh, devices and apparatuses used. He says here, let me read this. All use of external plans or devices, apparatus, instead of developments of the inherent inner powers or talents, or even the use of these talents with the corrupted, corrupted motive of dominating, bulldozing the real world or coercing other wills. Okay, so it's anti, I suppose you could say it's anti-technological, but I find it fascinating. I told you this podcast is about things that I find interesting, all right? So uh, let me blow your mind a little bit right now. The elves use science. They don't use magic. They're really, really good at knowing the natures of things and how to get them to do stuff, to reveal their truer nature, you know? So like Lembus is the, the truest nature of food. Um, or the rope that they give to Sam in Lord of the Rings, you know, uh, fine craftsmanship. It's not magic. It's not like Harry Potter. You wave a wand and say something. It's not, it's not that it's not some power that, uh, that you exercise, you know, you're not conjuring something, you know, when they cast spells in Harry Potter, to bring up an alternate universe, where does the power for the spell come from? Okay, so if Harry, you know, does the, uh, I can't even remember any of the spells. Uh, if he does the, the, like the terrible curse on Malfoy, for instance, where does the power come that smacks the enemy? Where does it come from? What is the source? It's not worked out. You wouldn't expect it to be worked out. Harry Potter, as enjoyable as parts of it are, is such silliness compared to Tolkien. And so he says on the next page, this is page 18, their magic, speaking of the elves, their magic, in quotes, is art delivered from many of its human limitations, more effortless, more quick, more complete, uh, and its object is art, not power, sub-creation, not domination, and tyrannous reforming of creation. Okay. Let's imagine. So one of the books that ruined my life was uh, Holistic Land Management by Alan Savory. Talking about how all of our farming is done wrong, or at least livestock farming is done wrong and it is ruining the pastures because you take, well, it's a long story. We did a podcast on that too over at Online Great Books. You can listen to that one. But if you don't have uh, animal pressure on the pasture that's concentrated and then moves, you know, much like the bison would have had under the pressure of predators, whether animal or human, uh, 
I think in North America, be mostly human predators. So they go and eat a whole bunch and poop a whole bunch, and then they move and leave it alone. That's what makes for a healthy pasture land. And our agricultural practices are magical, or the machine, dominating. You bulldoze in the name of progress. And you end up with a case where you have to keep pouring petroleum-based fertilizer into the land year after year, or it won't grow. Uh, it seems like a problem. It would be good. So this is allegorical, I suppose, uh, a moral story. I would say it's immoral that you probably ought to grow some stuff and grow it in the right way and find the right ways to do it. And the right ways to do it are ones that are not dominating, that do not leave the earth poorer than it was when you started. Uh, but you want to find a way that you can farm this land for centuries and live, um, you know, boring, eternally blissful lives like the elves. Uh, so he says here, the enemy in successive forms is always naturally concerned with sheer domination. And so the Lord of magic and machines, you can see that the, uh, if you've only seen the Lord of the Rings, Sauron and Sauriman have machines and domination. And, you know, they want to cut down the trees, which is different from harvesting the trees. They just want to cut them all down and burn them and, dominate and pave over the whole place and make it all like, um, you know, some sort of a Midwestern city. Okay, so uh, give me a moment. All right, the resuming, I had to pause and find the spot. I don't know if I'll edit this out. Maybe I will. We'll see. I, I don't know that I really want to edit this podcast much. I think I just want it to be emitted by me without too much trouble to make it pretty. Because honestly, I, I've i got a lot of other things that I have to do. And if the podcast becomes a, a burden. Uh, so anyway, we're just going to let it go. So uh, if you look, if you have the book, if you look on page 19 of the introduction, the elves, who are kind of like nature spirits, they're kind of like sub-sub-angels. Uh, they don't die. I mean, their bodies can be killed, and then their spirits go to the halls of Vandos, from which they might come again. Uh, but they're bound to the world, so nature spirits. But they have a fall. And he says some interesting things about this. Uh, so, proceeding, the elves have a fall before their history can become storial. That word is storial, S-T-O-R-I-A-L. And just above that, he says, there cannot be any story without a fall. All stories are ultimately about the fall. That's interesting. You know, I like reading about writing. I, I don't write much stories. Uh, I've written a few uh, But, you know, I, not being the egoist that Tolkien is, I don't show them to anybody. But stories have a fall. There, In other words, there's a good state to which the hero wishes to return. You know, th there ha we have this in our words, like protagonist and antagonist. There has to be something that's gone wrong. If it's a tragedy, they start off in bliss and they go down. If it's a comedy, 
they start uh, or end up in a bad place and return. This is why Dante's book is called The Divine Comedy. It's about the fall and the return. But you can probably think about it. Every story is in some sense a fall and a return. Even my my uh, beloved Hallmark shows, I haven't really watched very much anymore. I, I think Hallmark has fallen, honestly. But these these little stories, you know, the, the uh, oh, it's the, the, what would it be? It would be the recipe blogger, recipe mommy blogger from New York uh, who feels somehow estranged from her surroundings. She's not quite like everybody around her. Uh, she gets sent on location in Texas, which happens to be her old hometown. And so uh, she is departing from the apparent bliss of New York City. She's and finding that she has fallen from her original childhood glory. And of course, she finds that her old boyfriend is there with his pickup truck and he pulls her out of the ditch. And but even then, there's a fall inside the fall of the story because there's that act three in the story where they have the comic misunderstanding where um, he sees her. No, no, let me write the story right. She sees him with some other woman and they're very, you know, chummy and everything. And so she she is hurt. And then there's a fall from the prime, the little bit of glory that she had, the little bit of fun she had at the beginning. There's a fall and then it has to be resolved at the end. So there's a fall and a return when she finds out that the woman that her boyfriend was chummy with is actually his cousin and that everything's okay and that she got mad for nothing. And we wrap this up in an hour and a half. You have fall and return. That makes a story. We have this in the Odyssey, at the very least, you know, Homer, what did he know of falls? Well, being pre-Christian, well, he does know of falls, right? Uh, Odysseus had his good life with his wife and his child. There's this wonderful line in the Iliad, it's ironic, no, it's in the Odyssey. He says, uh, talking about Ithaca, Ithaca, a harsh land, but good for raising sons. Well, this is funny, ironic, because Odysseus hasn't raised his son. Penelope raised his son, or the suitors raised his son, or nobody raised his son because he's been away. He had this wonderful marriage with this woman who is his equal in intelligence and cleverness, as he says um, when he's talking to Nausicaa, and he's fallen away from this, and Ithaca has fallen away. If you read the first couple of books of the Odyssey, Ithaca is in a bad way. They don't have their king. And it's just falling apart. So it had primordial bliss, or at least maybe historical bliss, not primordial. And it's fallen away from it. And your interest in the story is, are they going to get back? Is he going to get back? So I find that really interesting that he thinks, that Tolkien thinks, that there cannot be a story without a fall. Uh, and you can think about whatever uh, story that you that you like, and see if um, you can sketch it on the the map of a fall and a return. Uh, I am looking forward. I don't know if you've you've seen the Children of Hurin on the bookshelves. Some of this tale is told in the Silmarillion. Uh, Christopher Lee narrates the audiobook, so I'm looking forward to doing that. 
but that's not going on. The, the stories, the men come into the story and they have conflicts with the angels, but there's a difference between the men and the angels. I'm sorry, there's a difference between the men and the elves. The uh, men die and they they go beyond. They leave the cycle of the earth. The elves die, but they stay. But for the elves, they get to see everything fading. And the humans, they get to see themselves fading. So it's kind of a difference. Uh, the elves stay the same and the world fades away. For the humans, the human fades away and the world stays the same. Well, what can you do about this? This is a problem that, that needs dealing with. And this is something that the story uh, really, it's the back thing. It's, it's in the background for the whole story is this fading away and death. And it, what it makes it appear tragic, but I don't think it is. There's a, a bit in the Children of Huron, which I don't have in front of me, where this one character, it might, I don't know who it is. Huron's one of my favorite characters. It might be him uh, or his son. And they're just being absolutely tortured by the bad guy. You know, uh, it just, that family in Tolkien's imagination. They're just uh, just really, really being put through the ringer. And the one of them says, you know, you cannot harm me past the circles of the world. Beyond the world, there is more than memory. And there's a limit to what you can do. You know, there's this bit where Hurin is... Uh, fighting he's surrounded and he's fighting and he, he keeps swinging his axe it's like um you know stacking the bodies as some people would say and he keeps saying daylight will come again day will come again you know that that's what he says with each stroke that uh death which puts an end to everything nevertheless is not the end if it were you know how could you bear it how could you bear it? You would have um, the horrible, horribly sad mythologies. For example, the Greeks are the ones that I'm most familiar with. If you read, if you read the Odyssey, and you read the chapter where he goes to the underworld, just open your eyes when you read it. Open your heart when you read it. It is the saddest thing in the world. These shades in the underworld, you know, they have, um, they have nothing but their grievances. <laughs> And, you know, they're all like seeking out the blood of the sacrifice to, to get as little bit of life as they can. There's this famous line from Achilles where he says, I would rather be a living slave than a dead king. You know, I mean, there's a few people that get the promotion, like Menelaus gets to go to the Elysian fields because he's Zeus's son-in-law. But for most of them, it's just a nothing. It's just, it, it's just... The great desire for glory and fame in the Iliad and in these early heroic stories that we have derives from their thinking about mortality. In other words, there is nothing but the name that they make for themselves. 
when you read the Odyssey, when you go back and read the Odyssey, read that last bit in the end about Hercules, Heracles. Heracles is supposed to be up in Olympus, but he's not. He's down in the underworld. And there's this line that, that says, well, you know, the real person's up in the, uh, the overworld, but his shade is down here. And I don't know how that works. I think he's just there. I think this is a, a spoiler on all of their stories of any kind of redemption. And really, would you want to go live up in Olympus with Zeus and Hera? I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, okay, let's talk about mortality and uh, the fading. So we have kind of an Atlantis kingdom in the mythology of Tolkien. This is Numenor. And uh, what happens is the men of Numenor, this is what makes them go wrong. They have this beautiful island within sight of the blessed realm where the, the earthly gods live, where the, the Valar live. They can't go west. They're not allowed to go west. But they can see it. But what happens is they start to realize it starts to really hit them. Look, we are mortal. Yes, we're, we're, we're superhuman. We live to 200 years, 300 years, but in the end we die. And uh, this starts to be unsatisfactory to them. You know, there is a strand in theology, Christian theology, that says that sin arises out of fear of death. Fear of death. Uh, I think it comes from St. Paul to the Romans. But nevertheless, it works something like this. There are all these things that you want. You know, as Augustine says, everything is good. Some things are better. Sin is when you choose the lesser good instead of the greater. Well, why do you choose the lesser good? It's because you have fear of missing out because you might die and not get that lesser good. You know, uh, maybe that's not a conscious decision, but if you had eternity, you wouldn't need to grab at that, that little bit of fun because you'd have all the time in the world to do it. But because you are mortal, remember that you are mortal, then these little things seem more and more important. Because if you don't grab it now, you might never grab it. Because life is passing away, and so are you. And, you know, while you were young and beautiful, you had better do the things that young and beautiful people do. Well, so it's the fear of death that, that motivates graspingness, you know, this grasping at everything. And if you could get rid of fear of death... You know, even the Stoics know this. If you get rid of fear of death, then these things, you know, don't hold any, they don't have any hold on you. Uh, and so uh, what happens to the kings of Numenor is that uh, they realize that old age is coming upon them, that they're going to die, that they're not immortal, and then they get tempted. And I'll just read a little bit here. I've been going on for a while. 
Uh, so this is on page 27 of the introduction. But at last, Sauron's plot comes to fulfillment. Tar Kalion, he's the, the fantastic king of Numenor, feels old edge and death approaching. And he listens to the last prompting of Sauron and building the greatest of all armadas. He sets sail into the west, breaking the ban and going up to war to going up with war to rest from the gods everlasting life within the circles of the world. Uh, and that's when Atlantis gets overthrown, Numenor gets overthrown, and, uh, you know, we end up with Lord of the Rings. A few people escape, and they they establish Gondor and, and Arnor and all of that. And, and that's, um, I suppose that's less interesting. Uh, but for me, Tolkien's thoughts on mortality and eternity and even just living for living a long time and seeing everything fade away and also his thoughts on uh, technology as being the domination of nature rather than the art of the elves, which is making, you know, living within nature. I think it's all, this is what I mean when I say Tolkien is true history, that there are true things that he says that uh, are more true than you know, the people's history of the United States, for example. That have more to tell you about the truth of your situation as a human being in the world uh, than uh, than this other stuff. So anyway, I love the Silmarillion. I know it's completely nerdy. You know, why would anybody read this? It reads like uh, a non-biblical Bible. <laughs> it's uh, sometimes, but sometimes it's profoundly beautiful. Sometimes it's really scary. The Doom of Mandos is really frightening. Uh, I love the story of Hurin, uh, Baron and Luthien. Of course, you have to at least know their story at some point. Uh, it's just, it's a whole lot of fun. The, uh, the Dark Lord has taken these three jewels. Okay, so, all right. I'm going to go on a little bit about the nerdiness of Tolkien, but but the goodness of his heart, okay? So there are, these three, uh, the three MacGuffins in the Silmarillion are the Silmarils. And they are three gems made by the greatest of the elves, whose name was Fionor. He's the one that, that starts the fall of the elves. Uh, and what they are is the primordial light of the world was these two trees in Valinor. And, uh, so Fionor, who is this great smith, he captures the light of the trees in gems that he creates. And, uh, and he stores them away. And his fall begins because he's over-acquisitive. He loves the works of his hands too much. You know, the right way to do it would be to make these glorious things and give them away. Or at least not care about them, but he, he cares about them exceedingly. Well, the trees are destroyed by uh, Ungoliant, who is this gluttonous spider creature thing that is so evil that she ends up eating herself because she can't find enough other things to eat. Uh, well, she uh, she kills the trees and Morgoth steals the Silmarils and puts them in his iron crown and goes off into uh, Middle-earth. And a lot of the adventure of the rest of the book is the attempt to get the Silmarils back. These wonderful gems that are the only remnants of the light of the trees. 
but they don't do anything. You know, if this were Dungeons and Dragons and you pulled up the, the stat sheet for the Silmarils, you would expect them to say like, plus five to intelligence, uh, allows you to create a magic shield, allows you to send laser beams out to kill your enemies. You know, you can do a, a divine glorious blast. They don't do anything. They're just pretty. I mean, okay, they burn the hands of the unrighteous. So Morgoth is in pain because he grabbed them in his hands uh, for the rest of his existence. Uh, but that's it. All they are is beautiful. I say that all they are is beautiful, but you know, do you really need to say that about beauty? Isn't beauty good in itself? They are beautiful. They are not technology. They're not made to do anything. They're made to be beautiful. And I think that's fantastic that, that, uh, that's it, you know, um, see, that's where I think that there is some of, uh, at least in Tolkien's personality and Tolkien's makeup, there are things that are true and good and beautiful. And this is one of them that beauty, you know, what does Dostoevsky say or have one of his characters say beauty will save the world. Well, I sure hope it will. I don't know what else will. You know, um, let me go on a little bit more. If you read, oh, it's, it, I can't remember if it's metaphysics or physics, but the uh, when Aristotle works out the first mover, I think it's in the physics. Well, it's in both, but the unmoved mover that moves everything else in the world. This is as close as Aristotle gets to God. He calls it God. Well, what is, why does everything move? What sort of thing is an unmoved mover? And he says, well, a final cause is an unmoved mover. A final cause, the for the sake. Why did I build the thing in the first place? Or put it this way, the object of love. The beautiful thing draws you towards it. Okay, so um, if I'm sitting in a room with you and I put a pizza down, the pizza has to do nothing to get you to move towards it. It is beautiful. I mean, it's just food, but it's beautiful and it draws you towards it. Uh, the beautiful girl doesn't need to do anything to motivate people, you know, seeking her. Uh, beauty has the quality of a motive. It's, and in Aristotle and in the cosmogony, that's not right, cosmology, deriving from Aristotle, taken up by Aquinas, the whole universe moves via love for the beautiful. Well, it's also the good. So having the Silmarils motivate all of this action is, uh, I, I think it's truer than, than perhaps it is. Do you know what I mean? It's truer than it is. It, it's, it's very, very cool. Uh, if you get up early in the morning and you look to the east, you can often see one of the Silmarils, at least according to legend, uh, because one of them was placed in a boat that goes through the heavens, and that is the morning star, the planet Venus, uh, which shines quite brightly. So you can see a little bit of the light of the trees if you can uh, imagine it thus. All right, so that's probably enough on this uh, first letter, uh, this letter that 
is the preface of the Silmarillion. Uh, yeah, it means a lot to me. And as I said before, this podcast is about things that I'm interested in. So, um, yeah, maybe you like. All right, so let me plug a few things as usual and uh, do some housekeeping and we'll wrap this up. So, as always, you can find me at carlshoot.com where I write a few things every now and then. Uh, you can also find me, I am a strength coach. That is my main gig. I teach people how to lift weights and give them accountability and program for them. And it works really well. And I'm proud of the work that I do. And you can find me at uh, barbell-logic.com. Uh, other things going on, uh, keep an eye on online great books. It, I am told that there'll be some sort of new thing. I do not know the exact new thing. Uh, so keep an eye on that. And uh, yeah, you can uh, find me at Instagram, shoot under strength shoot underscore strength. And I think that's it. So we're going to wrap this up. Thank you for listening. It's a pleasure for me to do these and I hope uh, it might give pleasure to you. And if you like it, you could uh, pass it along to somebody else that you think might like it. All right. Thanks. Thanks.